You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Turn to James chapter 2. This is a very famous passage. As soon as I start reading it, many of you will say, oh, I know this passage. This is a passage that I've heard before. It's about works. Um, So listen to what it says. James chapter 2, verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers and my sisters, if someone claims to have faith but no deeds? So you you see where his um, argument is about to go. He's he's starting off in 2.14. What good is it if someone says, oh, I have faith, but they don't have the works to go along with it? Let's say they keep living um, in sin, but they say, oh, I have faith, but I don't have works. So he says this. Can such a faith save them? And, and he's going to kind of answer this question that the answer is going to be no's. no. No. Uh, verse 15 says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. So that'd be kind of interesting. Don't picture that, but imagine it. Um, so they're without clothes and daily food. Um, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed. Um, but they don't do anything about their physical needs. What good is it? Obviously, no, no good. If, you, if someone is naked and cold and hungry and you just say, hey, man, have a great day, but you don't do anything, no good. Um, verse 17, in the same way, and this is where it kind of begins to be a challenge to us. Um, in the same way, faith by itself, if, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Uh, but someone will say, I have faith. Uh, excuse me, you have faith, I have deeds. And then, and then James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith uh, by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And so it's a pretty challenging passage to us as Christians um, that, that faith without works is dead. That, that, that we as Christians, um, we we're saved by grace, as we'll talk about today, but, but without those deeds, that, that says something about our, the, the decision we made, the grace that had come to us, and that maybe it never came. Maybe that grace um, isn't real to us if there's no deeds to show that we do believe. And so we'll talk about that today and what that means. So let's pray this morning. God, we thank you for passages in the Bible such as this one that are challenging and deeply personal to us as Christians and to, uh, to us as believers. God, would you, would you um, open our hearts, open our minds today as we study grace and works and what that means for us. God, we thank you that we are saved by grace. We thank you that you put inside of us your presence and your spirit, and so much so that, that we can act and be like you. And God, we're, we're grateful for that. We're grateful for the gift of grace and this gift inside of us that makes us like you. So we love you and we praise you. And everybody said... Amen. Well, I want to begin today with a story, as, as we usually do in the Sunday School. Um, and it's a story of my first experience as a freshman college student going to a college youth group. And I'll preface the story by saying that my high school youth group, where I got saved in and started going to uh, this Protestant high school youth group, uh, was just awesome. The youth pastor, him and I were pretty close. The youth pastor would challenge us to holiness, uh, challenge us about dating. He said, you shouldn't date, but you should court. Has anybody heard that before? Um, so he, that was one of his big things. And it's like, let's date in a godly way. And it may, it may look different than dating. Let's call it courting because it's going to look different than how the world does it. Um, and it was a great message in high school. I remember in high school, he was also our youth pastor and the youth group was very adamant about no secular music. Anybody else come from a background like that? And I appreciated it as a kid, um, as, a, as a high schooler. I think it was 
It was just a cool part of uh, being holy as a youth group. Let's not, when we go on retreats and stuff, let's not listen to uh, non-Christian. Let's not listen to secular worldly music. Let's listen to Christian music. Um, and, then, and then in my high school, it was really big deal that, that the Christians don't drink. That as high schoolers, you don't drink alcohol. Um, which was kind of an interesting dynamic in my high school because I, in high school, was in uh, Germany. My dad was in the Air Force. We were stationed at Ramstein Air, American Air Force Base, and so it was an American youth group, an American high school, and so in high school, in Germany, for me, the drinking age in Germany, does anyone know? It's like 16, but they always joke that if you're old enough to order it, you're old enough to drink it, Um, and so like anybody, pretty much anyone of any age, uh, a little toddler's getting a beer, Uh, no big deal in Germany, just kidding, but but you... It's that kind of thing. We're, we're in high school. If you wanted to drink, you could, which is very different than high school in America. Um, but so my youth group, I remember being very the youth pastor, and the culture of my youth group was let's be set apart. Let's be holy. Let's not go out clubbing. Let's not go out drinking. That's worldly stuff. And so when I came from Germany to, I, I moved at the time to New Mexico to, to start college, the University of New Mexico, uh, I tried a couple of different youth groups, went to one, and they had a ski retreat, and so we went from Albuquerque, New Mexico, up to Durango on this little church van. Uh, I think it was two or three church vans. And on the way, guess what kind of music we listened to? Secular, the devil music. Oh my gosh. And it was it was a little shocking. It's like, wait, we're on a youth group here. We're on a youth group retreat, and here we are listening to secular music. Oh my gosh, are these people even saved? Um, is what I was thinking. And the story kind of gets worse in some ways, because come to find out that uh, a, a boyfriend and girlfriend had paid uh, like extra or separate or something so that they could sleep in the same room together. And I was like, wait, they're not married. They're just, you know, but, but the, the, there was like this conversation that I was kind of overhearing on the van ride, and they were like, well, we paid extra. We, we got the we're kind of separate. We're just driving up with you guys, and we're going to stay in our own room and do our own thing. It's like, yeah, you are. Um, <laughs> but, it, but it was, as a Christian, and, and coming from a very conservative uh, youth group that was set apart and holy, it was just very eye-opening. Like, whoa, that's, that's kind of interesting for a, a church youth group to, to, you know, for, to let them sleep together uh, in a hotel room. Uh, and be listening to secular music. And then someone was, I thought they were joking, but it turns out they were very serious. And they were saying, uh, man, I hope there's a bar connected to the hotel motel so we could get our drink on or something like that. And I was like, oh, they must be joking. But sure enough, there was a bar like down the road. And sure enough, a group of them went out drinking. And I was just like very eye-opening coming from a very conservative youth group to this youth group. And I really did have questions about, is, are they saved? You know, is there, you know, they're, you know, surely drinking, or premarital sex or secular music are not the unforgivable sins. Of course, that's, that's, not, that's not true, that that would be the unforgivable sin. There's no unforgivable sin, but shouldn't the church look different? Um, I thought that they had this picture of Jesus. I found this on the internet, and it's just for humor. Um, but it says, Jesus saves the party, and he brings ice. Um, there's like, that, that's how the, in my mind, on this van ride up to Durango for this youth retreat, I thought, this is how they view Jesus. Jesus is just like their homeboy. Jesus saves the party. Um, 
So anyways, uh, we'll get to this question about works and grace today here in the Mill Sunday School and, and talk about those things. Like, what if Christians come to the Lord and then they live kind of just the same as the world lives? They party it up, they drink, they sleep together, uh, drugs, alcohol, whatever, whatever the sin might be. Shouldn't our lives as Christians be different? And at what point um, should we look at ourselves or look at other people, the church, and say, well, maybe this group isn't saved? I mean, how does that work? Um, and so not to, not to uh, and we should never, just to kind of preface where this conversation is going, we should never judge anyone else's salvation because we are all sinners in need of grace. But let's talk about it today. So we're going to talk about grace and works. Um, so first of all, welcome. If you're new to the Mill Sunday School, if you are new, there's uh, little papers on the desks and tables that you could fill out with as much or as little information as you want. And then you could bring them back as you leave. There'll be people back there. Give it to one of them standing behind the table. They'll give you, we have gift bags now. Ooh. Um, it's got like CDs, uh, a worship CD, a, uh, a message CD. And then Brady Boyd just wrote a new book called uh, Sons and Daughters. Brady Boyd's our pastor. If you're new, you might not know that. Um, and so the book's in there for you and a, and a gift certificate to the cafe. So it's a pretty cool gift. So fill it out. If you're new, we'd love to either give you an email or a call and get to know you and welcome you to the Mill Sunday School. So uh, that's the welcoming announcements for you. Uh, we are on this big systematic theological um, study of this. It's going to take us nine months to get through all this. We're a little more than halfway in this month of February talking about salvation. If you're looking on the, the bookmarks there, it's where we've been and where we're going. Um, and this, we're, what we're doing is systematic theology. If you've been around for a few months, you know that, that we, that the system that has been handed to us through church history, that we are going over that. And we started with uh, introduction, then we talked about God and creation and humanity. And last month we talked about Jesus. And here we are talking about salvation. The big word for that, anybody know what the big word is? Yes! Soteriology is the study of salvation. And it's, we're in this topic where we say that how does salvation work according to the God who created us? I think most people um, would say there's a God because it's hard to explain things without there being a God. And if that God is real, if he created us, well then maybe he put something inside of us that we may know him and that we may know his ways. And so what happens when we disobey him and we disobey his ways? Well, we as a Christian religion would say uh, God has spoken through the prophets. God spoke through his son and himself, Jesus Christ. We talked about how last month Jesus is God and is human. Uh, at the same time, we said, we said that Jesus came as a sacrifice for our sin. And so by putting our faith in him, his death on the cross saves us from our sin and our separation from God so that we might know him. And that's, the, that's in a nutshell what soteriology is as far as the Christian religion is concerned. And what we need to talk about, what we have to talk about, anytime you bring up salvation and soteriology, at some point you have to get to these two words, don't we? We have to talk about grace and works, or grace or works. And how is it that we are saved? Um, are we saved by being good? If you talk to a lot of people who uh, aren't churchgoers, they might say, oh, you're saved by being a good person. You know, as long as you don't murder somebody, 
or as long as you don't do something really bad, then you would be saved. You could work your way to salvation, that this, this point of view on the right side, that you could somehow work your way, you could impress God enough, um, the creator of the world, the perfect being that created you, and you could somehow impress him by not doing things like murder or adultery or, um, you know, you list out the really bad sins. Don't do those things and sometimes be nice to people, then, then that is salvation. And then there's another side that says, maybe the more Christian side, uh, that would say, well, we can never really work our way to salvation. We can't be good enough. And so we need grace, God's grace, God's gift to us for salvation. And then there's this idea of, okay, once we're saved by grace, well, how much works do we need to do? You know, looking back and thinking about the passage in James, faith without deeds, works is dead. Like, how does that come into play? If we're really saved by grace, well, then do we have to do the works? James kind of seems like, well, we, we need to show our faith or else that faith really isn't a saving faith. Um, and so how does this work? Grace or works? And we, we come around to that and we have discussions with fellow Christians. We talk about this and it's a very important thing. So today, what we're going to do is uh, put both words up there, put a line down the middle and kind of go back and forth and talk about grace and works, grace and works, grace and works. And then we're going to do a discussion in here. We're going to separate down the middle just to kind of let you know what's going to happen. Like right down here, like right back, Andy Tuttle will be cut in half. Um, Just kidding. And then uh, if you're on this side, you will kind of represent the side of grace. If you're on this side, you would say, well, there's also this importance of works. Like the the first verse we read this morning, Uh, works is important or else faith without deeds is dead. And then this side might uh, talk about the verse that we'll read at the end. It's by faith, uh, by by grace through faith that we're saved. And so that's what we're going to do today. So let's talk about this. Grace and works, um, both being very important parts of salvation. And one says this. One says, when when going back to the the idea of my youth uh, group experiences of high school being, you know, the, the church should be holy and set apart. And then going to this youth group, this college youth group where people were sleeping together and drinking and listening to secular music of all things. Um, what, uh, what does that mean? Is, is that the church? Is the church more like this? Um, more like a hospital? And so this would be the side of grace. Uh, is the church more like a hospital? Where sick people come. We're sinners come and sinners maybe slowly maybe drudgingly get better after time and maybe there's some doctors and nurses but maybe even the doctors and nurses get sick at times and if you come to the church i think anybody that comes to the church will eventually be disappointed by the people or something that happens or gossip or someone calls them a name or someone uh, you think, oh, this, this group is just being cliquish and they didn't welcome me in because they're sinners and they hate me. Um, because in some ways, this is one view of the church. The church is very much like a hospital, a group of sick people that know they're sick and are slowly, drudgingly trying to get better. Um, but they're still sick. This, we're still in a hospital. The other view of church on the side of works would be this. Uh, the church is somewhat like a monastery, People living holy lives, people living separate, apart from the world, people living uh, maybe not perfect, but near perfect lives, people praying, people uh, like this guy, this monk, spends his time in prayer and has this goal of, of glorification and being perfect and holy lives. So is the church more like a hospital full of saved people that are sick, or is the church more like a monastery? 
holy people being set apart from the world, people that are saved. So the, the question is, what do saved people look like? Do they look like people that are at a hospital and figuratively in a way that there's like, oh, they know they're sick and they're, they're coming to get better? Or do saved people look like they're holy and set apart and called? I think you can make an argument for both, couldn't you? You're sitting there like, yeah, I could, I could see, see both. So let's talk about this some more. Um, I'm going to put up two people's uh, names. And last week, uh, Greg Hampton was here and talked. Didn't he do a great job? If you were here, I listened to it via podcast and he did a great job. Um, and so I was up, in case you were wondering where I was, like, where was Joe last week? I was up in the mountains. Uh, I, took, I took like a vacation weekend and some homeboys, uh, my buddies from Los Angeles that I went to seminary with a few years ago, we had like a man reunion and we uh, went ice climbing and ventures and talking about theology, just like old times. So that's what I was doing. So thank you for uh, allowing me to be absent. But Greg did a great job and he talked about two people's names. Do you remember those? And this would be like extra, extra credit if you remember the two people's names from church history from the 400s that Greg mentioned. Anybody? Augustine was one of them. And then the extra, extra, extra credit guy started with a P. Pelagius. Yes, I heard it. You must have been here. You must have paid attention. I'm very impressed. So Augustine versus Pelagianism. And if you were here last week and you remember, wait, what did we talk about? We talked about original sin and how some people say we're born as little babies with original sin. Um, and we're evil right from the beginning. And we're, 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 because Adam sinned, we inherit that sin. And some people would say, no, right from the very beginning, we're good. And then somehow we learn sin. And so in, in some ways, the side of grace says we're born sinners and we need grace. We're in this huge mud pit and we need to be pulled out via grace. The other side works, the Pelagian side, and I'll put all these things up in a second, but just giving you kind of a big idea. The work side says we're born pretty good. We're born with the image of God, the Imago Dei. Um, and so we're born good, and eventually we make mistakes, we sin, because we see other people sinning and messing up. And we, in our own selves, choose to sin, but we don't have to. We could live perfect or near-perfect lives, and we could work our way and clean up our way towards God. So that would be the side of works. So let's talk about these two guys, kind of put them in context. So here's a picture of Augustine. Um, we don't really know what Augustine looked like. He probably didn't look like this, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, but here's Augustine. He would say the church is more like a hospital. And he actually did say some of these things. We know quite a bit about Augustine and what he said because he wrote a lot. He wrote like something like five million words, which is, think about that first. That's a lot of words. Um, that's books and books and books of what Augustine wrote. And Augustine is kind of the hero of church history. I'm teaching a class on Tuesday nights, uh, early church history, and Augustine is kind of our guy. Like we spent like a whole lecture, and we keep going back to what we will at least keep going back to what Augustine said and how he influenced the Reformation, how Augustine's works uh, just even to today, he's considered one of the greatest uh, church writers of all time outside of the Bible. In fact, this magazine, uh, which I'm sure you all get, and you're all like waiting to get this magazine, Church History Magazine, says outside of G, like they, they name like the most important figures in the world. And of course, Jesus is first. Say Jesus influenced the world more than any other person. And then they said Paul, Paul and his writings that we canonized as scripture, influenced the world more than anything else. And then they said third would be Augustine, sinner, bishop, saint. 
um, this, this great man who in history influenced so many thinkers. Like if you really start to study this guy and his influence, talks about the Trinity, talks about uh, this moral argument for the existence of God, which in, uh, C.S. Lewis takes upon. And you're like, oh, C.S. Lewis did that. Well, he kind of stole it, plagiarized it from Augustine, the original uh, guy. Not to say that C.S. Lewis uh, isn't the, an awesome Christian writer, but very influenced by Augustine. Um, and we know so much about Augustine because he wrote this book. And it was very unusual at the time in the 400s to kind of write a journal. But he kind of write, uh, wrote a journal about his own salvation experience, how he went from sinner to saint, and then he will become a bishop. And he titled this work Confessions. Have you heard of this work before? Not to be confused with this Confessions. <laughs> Usher's Confessions. Um, But if you would humor me just for a second, um, I think there's some interesting comparisons between Augustine and Usher. So just just hold on for a second. Hear what I know you're going to get mad, um, but but just listen. Uh, First of all, Augustine was from Northern Africa. So uh, although he's always painted as like some white guy, if he's from Northern Africa, what colors his skin? Black, like Usher. Um, So Augustine wrote Confessions. And in Augustine's book, so if you read this book, he begins by saying that he was a sinner and he loved partying. And that in his work, uh, he confesses to having an adulterous affair with a woman who he calls his concubine. Um, And by his concubine, he has a kid. Now, if you know the Usher song, Confessions, these are my confessions, right, David Leal? <laughs> um, he talks about having a chick on the side with one on the way. It, so, he ta- so bear with me, just bear with me. So in the song Confessions, Usher is confessing to having an adulterous affair and having a child. In Augustine's work, he's confessing to being a party animal and having an adulterous affair and a kid by the adulterous affair. Kind of interesting, don't you think? Yeah, it's, uh, thank you for humoring me. Um, anyways, Usher uh, claims to be a Christian. and his 1997 album, My Way, he begins his thank yous with, First and foremost, I would like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, Both Usher and Augustine have very uh, faithful mothers who pray for them their whole life. Usher says, "Uh, thank you, my mom, Jonetta. Thank you for showing me how to keep God first. Augustine thanks his mother, Monica. He says, my mother, Monica, prayed for me my whole life. She is the servant of servants to God. Um, Both Augustine and Usher know and realize how sinful they are. And Augustine prays this prayer, a very famous prayer. Augustine prays this. I'm sure you've prayed something like this yourself. Uh, God, give me the grace to do your will. Have you think about that for a second? Have you ever prayed that? I know I have. God, I know what the right way is. God, give me the grace to do your will. Um, Usher on his album uh, writes very similar. With your guidance, I will make the right choices. Talking to God, praying to God. So both of these guys would, would very much fall on uh, the side of grace. And thank you for humoring me with Usher and Augustine. Um, but anyways, that was to help you. Um, anyways, so Augustine is on the side of grace, that we are sinners. So Augustine said, we are born with original sin. In another one of Augustine's works, he talks about how uh, if, if a baby 
was born and had the, the power enough to do what he wanted to, well, then he would, he would kill and slash and murder just to get milk, just to get warm. To, if he had the power to do so, they would because they're born sinful. So, that's, so Augustine says that we need grace to lift us up out of this pit that we are in. So that's the side of grace. That's the side of Augustine. And so now for the other side. This will be you guys over here when we, when we get to this discussion. So the other guy's name is Pelagius, and that's how you spell his name. He's got a sweet haircut um, or a headband of hair. <laughs> Either way, it's pretty sweet. Um, so he said, Pelagius said, no, we're not born with original sin. We can work our way to, to, uh, to, to God's ways, and we can clean ourselves up. Um, Pelagius was, was from uh, Great Britain, or what is today France? We're not really sure exactly where he was from, but we know he came down to the city of Rome in the 400s. So Augustine and Pelagius were lived at the same time, and they debated back and forth via uh, letters and text messages. Um, just kidding. Just letters. They didn't have text back then. But we have some of those letters that were written back and forth. That's why we kind of know how this debate went. And so anyways, Pelagius uh, comes from the north, from either Great Britain or what is today France, moves to Rome and begins working with homeless, the destitute, poor, the sinners. And along the way, kind of realizes that these people are not very, they don't make very good Christians. Um, Kind of realizes along the way, that, uh, like, if you know a little bit about church history, you'll know that uh, it was illegal to be a Christian, you know, pre-Constantine, and you could be martyred for being a Christian. And then Christianity is legalized in around 312 AD, 311, Constantine becomes emperor, becomes Christian, and legalizes Christianity. And all these, uh, these floodgates are open for, like, all these poser Christians that want to come in and be a part of the church. Because before, it was a death sentence, and now Christianity is opened up, and it's like, oh, it could be the religion of the state. And so here, people could come in and be a Christian— And so Pelagius, in Rome, working with a homeless and destitute and poor, begins to realize that these Christians are not very good Christians. They're listening to secular music. They're, I don't know, I don't know that for sure, but they're just not, he thought, if, if the church is supposed to be called apart and separate and holy, these people are not very called apart. They're not very holy. They're not very separate. And quintessential to Pelagius's haircut, um, Let's talk about that for a second. This is called a tonsure. Can you say that word for a second? Tonsure. It's a sweet haircut, don't you think? No, let's be honest. It's really not a sweet haircut. Um, I would challenge the guys. Girls, don't get this haircut and and blame it on me. But guys, do what you want. I think I'd be, if next week you come to the Mill Sunday School with this haircut, uh, you get extra credit or something. How sweet would that be? Um, but it's really a horrible haircut. Um, and that's kind of the purpose. The purpose of a tonsure is to set yourself apart from the world, to get such a bad haircut that says, I don't care what the world thinks of me. I only think about what God thinks about me. And so there's, there's, there was lots of debate in the ancient world about what the tonsure haircut should look like, uh, how you should how bad it should be, but that's a pretty bad haircut. Uh, In some ways, it represents a halo. In some ways, it represents how you're shaving your head so that you and God could commune together. I don't know what people were thinking, but but the main idea is that you would be separate, called apart, holy, that you don't care about your dress. You don't care about your haircut. Um, and and uh, does any, did anybody know that like way back in the day when Tebow joined the Broncos, they hazed him and gave him this haircut? 
Have you seen that picture before? Um, ridiculous. Anyways, moving right along. Uh, <laughs> back to, and that wasn't photoshopped. As far as I know, they, they really did that to poor Tebow. Uh, but maybe he enjoyed it. Maybe he knew the history behind it, that it was like this haircut that was separating him from God. And of course, that's how he played football. And um, anyways, is he even playing football anymore? Is next season? Maybe. He's playing the bench. Anyways, so look at this for a second. So there's grace on one side, works on the other side. Pelagius with this holy haircut saying, the church should be like a monastery. It should be the people set apart and holy and, and, and living in, in such a way that represent Christ. And then Augustine on the other side saying, oh, we're born with original sin. It's only by the grace of God. And so church should be more like a hospital. Church should be full of sinners because that's what we all are. We're sinners saved by grace. And when we mess up, that shouldn't be any surprise to anyone because that so is the way of the world. So is the way of this internal sinful nature that we have. And so I would love to hear uh, some discussion on your end of what this looks like. So we'll split the, the room up right in half. And so if you are on this side, you will take the side of Pelagius. And you, maybe you'll find scriptures. Maybe you'll just have this argument that we need to be holy and separate um, for God. And then on this side of the room, if you're on this side, you will kind of side with Augustine. And you will say, uh, well, sinners and, and grace, you know, that's why we, you know, sinners sin, but grace covers us but not to the extent that we need to live perfect lives. The church can look more like a hospital. So here's how I've written the question. So discussion side with Augustine or Pelagius, uh, depending on what side you're on. If you're on the left, side with Augustine. If you're on the right, side with Pelagius. So at your tables, maybe find some verses. Think about this. Form a little argument. I'm kind of assigning you to uh, Augustine over here and Pelagius over here. And then I'll, I have a microphone. I'll come out and I would love to hear kind of both sides. I'll go back and forth uh, in the room. So be prepared if you want to share with everybody. So ready, get set, discuss, go. All right. Are you ready to discuss? And I do say discuss that we're not going to debate. We're not going to beat each other up. Uh, this isn't WrestleMania. Um, but what we'll do is we'll go, so one side will start us, and then we'll, we'll go to the other side. Um, and so maybe I'll come kind of in the center of the room. Does somebody want to start us off? You could be from either side. That will be the starting. Yes. Larry, right? Yes. All right. You, so you're on the side of Pelagian. Yeah. Okay. So my argument is, is that accepting salvation is a work in itself. And if it's going to be a work of you going to God and accepting grace, then maybe perhaps the rest of the salvation should be based off your works. This is devil's advocate on my part. Okay, so so yeah, so since you come to Christ uh, and make a decision for Christ, and that maybe in and of itself is a work, then why should there be more works after you're saved? I'm sure this, I just saw tons of hands go up, so I'm sure this side might have a little argument with that. I think, Aaron, you were first? No? Good, Chris. You could, everyone's like, I could say something right now. All right, I'll let Chris share. Chris is going to share his testimony a little later, so we'll, we'll hear his, his side. So I, I was just talking at my table about, you know, you're saved by faith, by grace through faith, and faith is dead without works, so that whole conundrum. But really, if you look at it, works is just a byproduct of already knowing that you're righteous. Works is not a means to gain righteousness. 
So if you just have works, you don't have any righteousness at all. You just have pride and a bunch of works. Dang! <laughs> and and if, you, if, you, if you have grace, you have both because the natural byproduct is going to be good works by realizing that you're righteous. So, wait, so, in, so you're saying we're fully saved by grace. Out of the grace comes works. And if, if, there's, if you just do works on their own, then it would be prideful. I like that. Good. So, Annie, are you on this side or this side? This side. Okay, somebody from this side want to represent. All right, all the way in the front. <clears throat> Let me get the, you this mic. There's a handful of verses in John that say, if you're my friends, you'll keep my commandments. They will know you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. And I believe in faith, but at the same time, you can't have a faith that saves without actions that prove what you believe because so much of what we believe is based in who we are and what we do. Yeah. Because if I say one thing but do something completely, what do I really believe? Yeah, that's good. So in some ways, you're saying what Chris said. You're saying we're saved by grace, but out of that comes works. But if you don't have the works, then maybe you're not saved by grace. Is that, did I say that kind of representative? All right, we'll do one, we'll do Aaron Higgins, and we'll come back over here. Looks like Aaron has her hand up very highly. So, and then, and then I'll kind of talk about, because there has to be some middle ground, and then I'll talk about that. So Aaron, and then Aaron, and then Aaron. Okay, I'm going to pull out C.S. Lewis here. I tried to find the exact <laughs> quote, um, so I'm going to have to paraphrase. I, I couldn't find it. Uh, but in one of his many works, Lewis draws an illustration of grace to a greenhouse. And he, he akins uh, works to the plants growing inside. He says it's not the greenhouse itself that casts the light. Rather, it's the sunlight hitting the greenhouse that grows the plants inside it. So that's the way it is with grace and works. The grace is the light shining through the greenhouse, which grows the plants. The plants can't grow without the light. Uh, but in such a, such a way, too, the greenhouse has no meaning unless it's growing something. Uh, so in this case, the works. So that's, that's Lewis's uh, analogy of grace and works, how they go hand in hand, that the two aren't necessarily dependent upon each other per se, but they're best when they're together. That's good. So somewhat of a middle ground. They work together. So let me run the mic over to Aaron, the other Aaron. So I couldn't really just go off of, we, none of us were really able to say that works ultimately gives you salvation. But I like to take um, what he said a step further about um, you, can't have, you can't have true faith in something. It's like having a relationship with someone. If you truly love someone and you're really walking with them and spending time with them and sharing life with them, your actions are going to reflect that relationship. So yeah. you... There's just no way to say, I have a relationship with Jesus, I'm going to heaven, if you're doing everything against what he said. So yeah. you need those works as your validation of, yes, this faith is real, and I believe in it, and I can show it to the world. So you're saved. I, th I think I see more middle ground as well. Amen. Amen to her. Yes. Um, so yeah, great word. So this middle ground, this idea that uh, maybe it isn't, so I have this screen, maybe it isn't grace or works, and it's like, which one is it? But maybe it's this statement, and I put this statement in your notes. It's, it's about the middle way down. And I said, maybe it's like this. I said, maybe it's grace and then works, which I think was said again and again on both sides. Uh, grace and then works, and then there's more grace, because I think sometimes we get into this mindset of, 
oh, anyone can be saved. You know, no matter what you've done, no matter how much secular music you've listened to, you could become saved. You can become holy. Uh, you could become full of grace and truth and righteousness, and God can have his life inside of you. And then out of that, you would have works. Uh, your, your life would show it. Like Aaron said, if you, if you loved someone, well, then you would spend time with that person. You would, your ways would be like their ways. Um, but then I think we have to say as Christians, there's, there's more grace after that. That if it's just all works after you're saved, well, then it does become kind of this uh, works mentality. And there has to be grace for when we do, and I think all of us do, mess up. And there's, there's decisions that we make or, or sins that we commit after knowing grace. So I put it like this, grace and then works and then more grace. And I, I wasn't being totally honest with you when I, when I described Pelagianism. I described it in such a way that wasn't very um, drastic like Pelagius was, because Pelagius was pretty out there. Um, he's condemned as a heretic, as you might have remembered from last week. Greg quickly mentioned that. Um, and so I wasn't being totally honest. Pelagius would say things like this. Pelagius, when a new Christian came to Christ, Pelagius would say, these are my words, Pelagius would say, high five, you did it. You cleaned yourself up for God. Now you can be part of the club. So it's like, whoa, that's pretty different than what we say. Um, that we would say, a new person comes to faith, we would say, amen. Thank God for, for God's grace upon your life. Thank God that you are welcome into, into this club of church and that you don't have to have your life totally cleaned up yet. Uh, Christ will do that. We don't say um, at New Life, make sure you clean yourself up before you come to church. Um, make sure you're not sinning. Make sure your life is perfect before you come to church or else don't come. We would never say that. We would never ever say that. We would say, come as you are, receive the message of Christ. And we would also say, out of that will come a life change. If your life really is conforming to God, out of that you would become righteous and you would want to live according to the ways of God. So Pelagius would say, high five, you did it, you cleaned yourself up. And we would say, no, that's not the way it works. Pelagius read Confessions of Augustine. And you remember that prayer that, that I said that Augustine prayed? Augustine said it like this. Um, Augustine said, uh, give me the grace to do your will. Give me the grace to do your will. And I think we've all prayed that. But Pelagius read that in, in Augustine's book, The Confessions. And Pelagius said, hogwash. How can that be? That's heresy, that someone would pray to receive the grace to do God's will. And Pelagius was pretty far out there. I don't think anyone would say it like this. Pelagius would say, how dare you pray for the grace to do God's will? Just do God's will. You don't need the grace to do God's will. You just need to do God's will. Clean yourself up. Act better. Act right. Stop sinning. Live nearly perfect, and you'll be saved. That's pretty far, pretty far over there, don't you think? Yes. Um, and so Pelagius was way over there thinking, you know, how dare Augustine pray for the grace to do God's will? Whereas most of us would say, bring it on, bring on God's grace to do his will, because there's no way we can do it without God's grace. So in the end, I think grace wins. Don't you think? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but going back to that statement, grace and then works and then more grace is kind of how I put it. This, this little simple sentence that um, I found somewhere. Grace and then works and more grace. So there is middle ground. I think Pelagius would be um, pretty far extreme than anybody 
over here and by saying that you, don't, you shouldn't even pray for God's grace to help you do his will, I think we would all say, yeah, we need God's grace. Um, anyway, so I think grace wins. So I have, uh, as I just mentioned, Chris, uh, why don't you come on up here? I'll get this mic ready for you. Uh, I asked Chris to share briefly his testimony because I've heard his testimony. Uh, and there's Chris and his wife, Rose, and she's pregnant, by the way. She's having a baby. Um, and remember, remember a long time ago when we said, uh, c- because systematic theology is nine months long, it's like we're going to have a systematic theological baby because it's nine months. Well, they took it literally. Um, and so in May, they will have a literal baby. Um, anyways, kind of weird. A literal systematic theological baby? I don't know. Maybe. Anyways, Chris, sorry to get off track. Uh, tell us a little bit about your testimony because it has to do with grace and works. All right. So how many of you have been to a Baptist church in the Southeast? How many of you have ever been to a judgment house around Halloween? <laughs> few hands. Okay. So, I mean, I don't want to stereotype Baptist churches because there's a lot of great ones, but I just want to share like some of the ones that I went to, my experience, etc. Um, so a judgment house would be like on Halloween, you would take your friends and like take them to church and they go through this judgment house, they get scared into salvation. But it's like a haunted house. Yeah, it's like a haunted house. It's like... We should do that in here, don't you think? <laughs> awesome. It's like, like the, the judgment house that I went to is like you go in a room... There's like a car wreck, and then <laughs> I know. And then you go in the next room, and it's like the people that you thought were bad people are like in heaven, and then the ones you thought were Christians are in hell, and then you go into the third room, and it's like 120 degrees, and it's like pitch black. People are screaming, and <laughs> then you go to the final room, and they're like, "Now who wants to be saved?" <laughs> it's like. It's like, um, yeah, and then, you know, being Baptist, they love to count salvations. Like, hey, last year we had 300 salvations. Yeah, but they don't tell you that, like, none of them are discipled and they're all scared into salvation. So, anyway, a little backstory. I was born in Columbus, Georgia, went to Texas right after I was born. Um, Texas, we went to a First Baptist church. You know, I just went to, like, Sunday school. I wasn't big enough to go to big church. So then we moved to Eufaula, Alabama. I want to see hands. How many know where Eufaula, Alabama's at? Got one hand, two hands. Nice. So uh, Eufaula, Alabama's country. Like, we lived on the Chattahoochee River, and I'd look in the backyard, and there'd be, like, ESPN camera people, like, filming people bass fishing in my backyard. Um, I mean, every Wednesday night at the church was fried chicken and sweet tea, collard mm. greens, every week. They never change that Wednesday night menu, fried chicken, every time. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it was that type of community. I, ha- I went to Baptist churches all throughout the southeast. Um, one of the churches I went to, Jeff Foxworthy, was a regular at my church. That was in Atlanta. Um, so, I mean, you could just imagine the type of church, like Jeff Foxworthy's up there in front of me writing down redneck jokes based upon my church members. <laughs> uh, so, 
you know, at, at the at the age of at the age of nine, I was good at throwing a hatchet, shooting a bow, bow and arrow. I was good at frog gigging. But anyway, that's just a little backstory. <laughs> just just to kind of like paint this picture of like where I'm at in the country, like professional bass fishing, etc. So at the age of seven, I'm finally big enough to go to big church. Uh, <laughs> so that was pretty awesome. But in big church, I was introduced to a God that scared me. I was introduced to, we had a revival like every four months because it brought in good money for the church and the revival guy could talk for two hours instead of 30 minutes. So I have a revival. I'm like seven this guy does this whole two-hour sermon about hell. This whole thing about, you know, if you don't accept Christ, you're going to hell. And then he spends the next hour and a half talking about details of how demons torture you, and you're like burning, but you can't ever die, and blah, blah. So my brother goes forward at the end of this, and I follow him out of fear. I'm like following my brother, like shaking, like, uh, you know, like I don't want to go to hell, so I better go forward and get my get out of hell free card. We'll call it salvation. So <laughs> then, you know, I was seven years old, went forward, got saved. But then later we moved to Atlanta, and I was like 11 years old. And um, I was introduced to a different God. This God was about love and grace. This God, um, you know, is more like the prodigal son. Like, no matter what you've done in your life, God is loving. He accepts you in his arms. But after, after I got genuinely saved at the age of 11, that God with open arms changed um, I mean, I was that same God with open arms has a stick ready to hit you on the head when you mess up. I got introduced to legalism. Um, I mean, that God was like, you know, if you're at a Baptist church, they're going to teach salvation every other week. And if it's not salvation, then they're going to at least have an altar call. Like, if you're not saved, come forward. So, like, the big emphasis was put on, you know, like, let's, let's see how many people can get saved. And, you know, that, that church in Atlanta, they had a great message. If you're not saved about the prodigal son, that is a great message. But then the subtle legalism, like, well, if you're already saved and you're not tithing, you know, you're probably going to go bankrupt. And if you... If you're, like, sinning, or they call it backsliding, how many have heard of backsliding? Mm -hmm. Show of hands. A lot of people. So if you're, like, backsliding, it's not like you lose salvation because we're Baptists, which, by the way, I mean, how many First Baptists are there? Like, First Baptist Texas, you follow it. I was confused at who was the first. I don't know. (laughs) But... So with with the backsliding, like I remember a pastor being like, well, you don't lose salvation if you're backsliding, but because I'm living upright, my car keeps working, my washing machine doesn't break. So it was like this subtle like implication, like, 
okay, you're not going to lose salvation, but we might question if you're saved in the first place, and, uh, you know, you need to repent. So from 11 to 17, I spent most of my time at the altar repenting. Uh, You know, I I knew I was saved, but I also knew that God was like Santa Claus. Like, if you're good, you get gifts. If you're bad, you get coal and maybe hit on the head or... So... At, from, from 11 to 17, I kind of compared God to a mix of, like, my dad, who would spank me if I was bad, and Santa Claus, where you get good if you're good, bad if you're bad. So that was my view of God, and I spent so many weeks at the altar crying, repenting, the whole nine yards, never having any freedom. And, you know, most people, they would end the story at that 11-year-old point where you say, well, I got saved, period, great story, let me sit down. But really, my life-changing event happened at 17. So I was going to, like, a youth camp, (laughs) and there's this girl on the bus from another church, and she was hot, and... Like, I was like, I, I want to date her. So I, I, like, figured out where she was going to church at, which was, like, 45 minutes from my house. And I started driving to her church. And I show up at her ch- Well, first I show up at, at church, and I'm, like, helping these grannies, like, carry in food and trying to get brownie points. And then I'm like, is a... Her name was Anna. I'm like, is, is Anna, does she go here? You're like, no, that's the church across the street. So <laughs> I, like go, I like, well, I've enjoyed help carrying in food, but I got to go. So I go to the other church, and then I see, I see Anna. She's like sitting in the front row, and I'm like thinking, why is she in the front row by herself? Like, this is not a concert. This is church. Like, why would you be front row? So I kind of sit back a few rows, try to play it cool, not too aggressive. <laughs> so then, then the, the pastor gets up and he introduces himself, and he has like the same last name as the girl that I like. So <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm kind of interested in the pastor's daughter, so I better really go above and beyond at this church. <laughs> So I'm there early Wednesday nights, I'm setting up tables, I'm there late, I'm there early Sunday, late Sunday. A lot of Sundays I go to church at like 7 in the morning and leave at 7 at night. I mean, I was just constantly there trying to pursue this girl. But I think God had a plan for me being there because I was getting involved with every class and there's this one class called Grace Walk. And I took this class, and they were, like, teaching stuff off the wall that just didn't seem right. Like, they were teaching, well, you're righteous by the blood of Jesus, and uh, no matter what you do, God loves you. And no matter what you do, you know, His love never fails, and He never leaves you or forsakes you. And I was like, whoa, 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 we can't be teaching that. Like, I wrote that teacher an email. I was like, you, this isn't right. Like, you shouldn't teach that because from 11 to 17, I've been busting my tail to do good works. And uh, not, not because I'm scared of losing salvation, but I'm scared of God's punishment. So I'm like, you can't be teaching people that. God's going to punish them. 
and you don't want people backsliding and getting caught up into all that. And if you're teaching grace like that, that's what's going to happen. So anyway, looking back on it, the reason I couldn't accept that message was I felt like I was like kind of, you know, most of the way righteous on my own, and then God would fill in the 10 or 20% where I fell short. And that class was teaching like, hey, you're not righteous at all without God, and that did not sit good with my pride. You know, the Bible says that, that grace is for the humble, and that class did not sit good with me. But anyway, so that's kind of, you know, at seven I was introduced to a God of, of fear, a God where you need to get your get-out-of-hell-free card. At the age of 11, I was introduced to a God who welcomes a prodigal son, but after salvation, he's like Santa Claus, or like your earthly father, where you're going to get punished if you mess up. And then at the age of 17, um, after God dealt with my prideful heart, and I finally humbled myself to receive grace even after salvation, that's when, that's when my life really changed, because so many Christians know that they're saved, but they still struggle and sin and fight so much. And really, God just wants us to walk in grace and His love even after salvation. So that's kind of my story. That's great. Thanks, Chris. Um, well, that's probably with that a, a really good place to kind of end this message about this, this, that sentence that I said, it's grace and then works and even more grace. And next week we're going to have uh, Bobby Nicholas. He's, he's coming to, to teach. I'll be, my brother and his wife just had a baby. And so we're going to go visit uh, my new, uh, is it niece? I'm an uncle then? Yes, that's awesome. Um, and so uh, Bobby will be here. Bobby is the, our local ministries pastor and works uh, with, with like lots of local outreaches. And maybe I'll just end with uh, this, this quick uh, story of like this homeless shelter. I heard the story of a, of a poem being read in this homeless shelter. And you think about a homeless shelter, you think about people that are very down and out, people that are um, so far from, you know, a, a, maybe a normal life and lots of drug addictions and alcohol addictions and even simple things like making a phone call ends up being a very big deal. I don't have a cell phone. I'm a quarter. I don't have a car to get somewhere to make a phone. I mean, just very little things become very big deals um, if, if you're homeless and, and a part of the homeless lifestyle. And so this poem was read, as, as the story goes, the poem called If by uh, Ruyard Kipling who wrote it in 1895. And it's just a simple poem, like, what if? If only you can keep your head when all about you, people are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If only you can trust yourself when all men doubt you. If only you can wait and not be tired by waiting. If only, and the poem's quite long, but it goes on and on. But if only you can do this baby step, then you will be. Um, If only, you know, you can do this. And someone, as the story goes in this uh, story, a homeless person raises their hand and says, well, what if we can't? And I think that is, I think, in some ways where we should all be as, as people that have been created by a good, loving God, but have fallen away from him. It's like, well, what if we can't? What if there's not even this hope inside of us of knowing our God without him first knowing us? And so 
It's with that that we'll, that we'll pray and recognize his work inside of us. And so, Jesus, we, we come before you humbly and, and knowing that, that you are the, the one who gives us grace. And it's only by your grace that we can come back and, and be a part of you and be according to your ways. So, God, we thank you for, for grace that lifts us up out of uh, the death and the pit and the mud that we are in. God, we thank you for that gift. We thank you that we just have to come to you with faith, and, and you will make us righteous. So it's with that that we, we worship you and praise you, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. All right, friends, go in peace. Have a great morning and rest of your week. Thank you for listening to the Mill Sunday School podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.